0: Okay, Boca Podcast listeners, thank you so much for joining us today for yet another episode in which we're going to uh, touch on a couple of different really big topics, success and pricing with my new friend, Kerr Tubin, And Kerr, you and I were talking about names beforehand and and pronouncing names. I have a kind of an odd last name, Holritz, that gets mispronounced all types of different ways. I love that you keep it simple. I may have to simplify my last name, shorten it or something, just like you did your first name. Kerr is a really great name.
1: Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I actually, um, in my logo, spell my last name with a number, um, so it's 2Ben. So it's um, it's a mouthful when people are trying to pronounce something and then I always hate correcting people. So yeah definitely get that last name sorted. <laughs> no,
0: it's, it's cool. What well, it makes you that much more unique than you already are. And um, we're going to get to know you personally here in just a second. But I want to start off with what we call the lesson. And very simply, this would be the toughest lesson that you've learned as a photography business owner so far. What comes to mind when you think about that question?
1: Oh, man. Well, I would say that like comparison is the root of all evil. And I think that The hardest lesson that I've learned is kind of just to like be nicer to myself. Um, A lot of the times you'll see even my friends doing amazing things in the photography world and elsewhere. And it's kind of hard not to compare yourself, you know, when you're on Instagram or Facebook, kind of seeing what wonderful things all other people are doing and you know, you, you just kind of have to exist within yourself and kind of, you know, not be so, so tough on yourself. Uh, so I guess that's probably the lesson that I am continually learning each and every day.
0: <laughs> what's at the, what's at the root of that? Like, do you, do you find yourself certain days just kind of feeling down? What does it actually look like for you?
1: Oh man. You're just like diving right in. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it's not, it doesn't like get me down, I guess now that I've kind of harnessed that. And it's one of the books that I read way back when, uh, called you are a Badass." Actually, uh, it kind of tells you that when you're feeling jealous or you're feeling insecure you can use that as a tool you kind of are supposed to like pick it up look at it and really examine like why are you feeling some type of way about this jealousy or about you know this shoot that this person did or all this success that this other person is having and it always comes back to something that you you want within yourself and I've worked pretty hard to get to a point where I can either say good for them, not for me, or just straight up good for them, and I'm working towards it. You know, there's always someone ahead of you and someone behind you, and you just kind of have to start feeling comfortable with your place in the world. So, yeah, that's kind of kind of where I'm at.
0: That makes sense, well, and, and I like the the fact that that book actually pushes the the reader to ask the question why. Because I think there's a tendency in our culture a lot these days, a lot of times to, I just say this is who I am. This is how I feel. And the conversation kind of ends there. And then, you know, somebody that posts something about how they feel on Facebook, rather than actually going inward and figuring out what's driving that and taking responsibility for making whatever change they need to in their life or their business in order to address that feeling, they just kind of assume this is how I am. And they're waiting for somebody else to come kind of coddle them and hug them and and say it's okay. Support is wonderful. But at the end of the day, we have responsibility to understand to develop self-awareness, basically, to understand what's driving those feelings and so I love that you bring up that point that we do need to ask why, what's at the root of that. And I was just having this conversation uh, or it's a very similar conversation actually with Haley this morning, heads up our, our digital marketing at photographers edit. And one of the things that we were talking about was how photographers tend to, I mean, this is, and this is something I've actually talked about in the podcast before too, I think, but uh, there is a tendency that photographers have to look to kind of satisfy their, their ego, if you will, that that can sound like a harsh word, but we, we all have an ego that is fed in one way or another. And, and it, a lot of that for photographers comes from looking for approval, I guess, or even affirmation from other photographers. And the irony to that, at least from my perspective, and I'd love to get your take on this, is that at the end of the day, in order for our business to be successful, our clients are the ones that actually need to be made happy, right? They have to have the positive experience. They've got to have great images. And yet we look so much, and and I've been guilty of it myself as a photographer, we look to other photographers for approval when really our clients' happiness is actually what matters. And we don't actually take that as serious as the photographers. Where do you think that comes from? and, And what's at the root of that? What's your take on that?
1: Well, you could not be more, right? A lot of the time, the photography world feels a bit like high school. You know, you just want to be, you want to be voted like most popular homecoming queen or whatever it is, or um, be in the cool kids crowd. But you're 100% right. It is about client experience, especially, I mean, I know I'm already starting to talk about money, but it's, it's what it comes down to is return on investment, right? Like you could put on this beautiful shoot and all of your photographer friends are fawning over it and maybe it gets published, but unless a client sees it and you book a wedding or a portrait session or whatever it is, that's not returning you money. You know what I mean? So it's just always funny to find what my photographer and photographer friends love versus what my clients are drawn to. Like I'll mention a blog or two that like I really am inspired by and I really love. And a lot of my real brides have no idea what that blog is or that some of these wedding blogs even exist. So you know, it's a really good wake up call to kind of immerse yourself more in client conversations than conversations with people in, in your workplace.
0: Yeah, it's true. And, and it, just to be very clear for all of our listeners, I, I don't mean to minimize the significance of finding that um, or looking for that approval. I understand where that comes from, why we want it as photographers. And again, I say we because I, I shot weddings for 10 or 11 years. I'm actually getting ready to, to step back into the role as a photographer, as a kind of a part time gig, gig, if you will. And, and with a new project that i 'm working on, and you know it's we, we take a certain picture, we put it out there with the hope that we 're going to get some type of approval it 's just kind of innate to our existence, but I think at the at the end of the day, going back to your original point um, and, and that book, developing a certain level of self awareness, understanding where that drives that drive comes from, and being able to create a little bit of separation from uh, that desire and logically, objectively understand what actually drives our business, what matters to our clients, I think is really, really important. And I'll just leave the topic at that. I think we could actually d- go even deeper with that. It um, really, <laughs> could I really, be a full hour. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but I really appreciate you starting off, uh, starting us off on that on that topic, and let's just let's kind of let's go the personal route. And, and you know what? I have to start here because normally I would this is where I would ask you something random about yourself, and I'm still going to do that. But I was looking at your bio page on your website. And for those of you listening in, uh, Kerr's website is as you said earlier, Kerr Two Ben. So it's K I R the number two B E N dot com. And on your bio page there, you mentioned something that resonated with me, and that is that you taught soccer, coached soccer. Uh, in Vietnam. And that's probably a conversation in and of itself. But do you have a background in soccer?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, I just love teaching in general. I do have a little bit of a background in soccer, but actually I was a division one athlete and I swam for four years at Duke. Yeah. So that's actually how I met my husband. He was my recruit, which I guess would be like a fun fact uh, that some people don't know. Dare we dig into that
0: conversation a little bit?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, So I just, I love sports. I mean, I played soccer when I was younger and I think that sports are so important, especially for females getting into college. It, it teaches you everything in my, in my opinion. And it also is a great stepping stone to personal relationships and it teaches you about failure and success and just all the wonderful things. Um, So yeah, I love sports. And I had the opportunity to teach health and soccer. Um, it was a program called Coach for College, and so they send you over and they teach you teach a sport and a, a topic in school. Um, and they don't have too many pools over there in Vietnam, so I did revert back to my middle school soccer days.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I played soccer up into college, so I, I read that and I was like, "Oh, is this a soccer player that we have here on the podcast?" But <laughs> you know, swimming is is almost as fascinating to me, largely because I have been so terrible at it. I actually competed in a season of triathlon, did both an Olympic distance and then a half Ironman. And my my weakest sport was swimming. And I, I found that I had a tendency of my lower body, I guess from years and years of playing soccer, a lot of dense muscle, I just, I would drag through the water. So I would put so much effort and energy into doing even one lap or two or three laps that I'd be exhausted by the end of that. And here I am supposed to you know swim a half mile or close to a mile. So I had to get a coach and then I got a, a GoPro and I'd stick it on the bottom of the pool and look at my my form and make adjustments. It was a big, big challenge. Oh, so I have, man, a lot of, yeah. I have a lot of respect <laughs> for your ability to be able to swim at that level it at yeah, Duke, you said you you swam all four years.
1: Oh yeah, all four years. I was going to say you got to lift the hips, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but most most triathletes actually struggle with the swim. But I've done a couple, and biking is always kind of where I struggle because I'm just not not the best land creature. But yeah, so I, I loved it. I still swim with my husband today, not too much as aggressively as we did, but yeah, all four <laughs> years. And um, another fun fact: my sister actually won an Olympic gold medal for swimming when she was a senior in high school. So that is another little tidbit about my life. That is so kind of cool.
0: Unique. What a competitive yeah. family too. Wow.
1: Yeah, we're, we're all over the place.
0: <laughs> that's, that's really great. Now you mentioned your husband. Tell us a little bit more about him. You said you met there when you were at Duke. Tell us a little bit more about how you met, connected, and maybe a little bit of how you guys like to spend your free time these days.
1: Oh, man, what free time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right? So yeah, so Ben is just the best thing in my life. A lot of teams work as a husband and wife team. We are not that I tried that route. And Ben just absolutely cannot stand photography. He doesn't get it. He's my exact opposite. So he plays the cello and he works in technology and plays a lot of online games with the whole headset and everything. He's quite the adorable nerd, as you well. just
0: But you just threw out a bunch of stuff there. So is he is he playing video games professionally? Is he playing cello professionally? Oh, what what is that look like? No,
1: he wishes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, no, he he works. Uh, he actually just took a new job at Hilton doing like digital strategy. Okay, and cool. So in his free time, we kind of just you know we we'll listen to music. We live in D.C., so you know we have all the museums here that are oh, free, which are fabulous, amazing. And, yeah. Yeah, so we kind of like keep work and personal separate, so he's not doing too much shooting with me or any shooting really. Um and I, you know, I'm not a big Dota fan or anything. So <laughs> we we have a good separation of uh work and casual time, so that's nice.
0: Yeah, and independence too. This is a topic that's fascinated me for the last few years or so with regards to relationships, the significance that independence carries in a romantic relationship, especially a long-term romantic relationship in order to kind of maintain that, that excitement and the spark for each other. You've got to be, you still have to maintain that independence. You have to be your own individual self and that can actually draw you or push you back to the other person. And I think it's a, I think beautiful thing that you guys exhibit. How long have you been together?
1: Oh man. Well, Nathan, actually you hit the nail on the head. I have more questions about my independence from Ben than any other thing in my life. We've been together for seven years. We've been married for two and Last month, I took a month off of work, and I lived in a van with my friend Carly, actually, another photographer. How cool. It was great, and I've always wanted to do it, and I wanted to see the national parks, and, you know, I've wanted to live that kind of on-the-road van life. And I uh, had a conversation with my husband about it, and he has no such dreams. <laughs> he he did not want to live uh, in a van. He didn't want to, like, really travel the West, and he's always been, you know, if you want to do it, do it. So... Uh, he's just so supportive, and I can kind of just be me, which is what's really freeing, and it gives us time to miss each other. So yes, yeah, a lot of independence.
0: <laughs> yeah, and there's there's so much to be said about that. I mentioned this actually in the podcast episode that we just uh, put out today, that just went live today, uh, Thursday, April nineteenth. That actually, I'm I'm working on a a project or kind of relaunching a project, a podcast, another podcast about relationships specifically. And this is going to be one of those topics that I'm sure we're going to cover quite a bit. I may even reach out to you guys uh, at a later date to see about about doing a conversation because I, I think relationships are fascinating, and of course, they don't just carry over to uh, our personal life, but also to the business side of things. And understanding, first of all, having that self awareness that we talked about earlier is really, really important because that then translates to how we interact with other people, and and on the business level, how successful we can be. So I think it's it's a fascinating topic, but we talked about free time and you mentioned, you asked the question, what free time? And I think that's a common (laughs) feeling for a lot of business owners. When you guys do have the opportunity to spend that time together, how do you create that space for yourself? Even if it's just for an hour or two here and there, what is it? Do Do you have a particular tip or tool or technique or workflow that you utilize to give you some of that space together?
1: Well, people might think I'm crazy, but I actually use an Excel spreadsheet. A lot of people use different things for calendars, maybe Google Cal or whatever it is. But I have an Excel spreadsheet and there are days where I literally type in do nothing. And that could be for an hour, a chunk, or it could be for an entire day where I'm not allowed to answer emails. I have to turn my phone off. It's usually a Sunday. Saturdays are tough because I'm shooting weddings for 27 of my weekends out of this year. But Sundays are basically bend time. Sometimes, you know, we'll go for a walk or go for a run, go to the gym. His parents live nearby, so we double date his parents a ton. But yeah, so I just, I have to block it off and I have to write it in for myself because if not, I'm super addicted to my job and super addicted to my work because it's one of my favorite things in the entire world is to serve couples and to photograph beautiful things and to make those people happy. But if I don't make the most important people in my life happy as well, then you know, the whole, the whole tower comes crumbling down. So yeah, my, my technique is to have an Excel spreadsheet and write, do nothing.
0: <laughs> and, and it's so simple and so straightforward. And, and I love that. And I, we've seen some examples of this in the, on the podcast uh, where photographers are just simply creating the space by either putting it in the calendar or in your case, putting it in an Excel spreadsheet, whatever the tool is, use it. I, I just think that the beautiful thing is that you're simply doing that. And I, I've, there's been, there's just been too many experiences as both as somebody in the photography industry and conversations I've, I've had with photographers or things that I've overheard or seen online or in my personal life as well, where there's one excuse or another for not making time, especially for relationships. And and that's just confusing to me. And, and ultimately even hurtful in some cases, I love that you just simply set the time aside. I think it's a great example for all of our listeners, you know, while we may love what we do, at the end of the day, those important people in our lives don't need, our relationships with them don't need to suffer at the hands of that thing that we love to do. They can coexist. And one of the ways to make those those two things coexist is just simply to be proactive and create that space. I, I love, the, the again, the simple idea of just turning your phone off. Of closing out email or, or whatever it might be, just shutting that stuff down and giving focus and attention and energy to those people. I think that's beautiful. i you mentioned something that was really interesting to me just a second ago, which is uh, in, in fact, when you were talking, you were referring to your business and the first thing you said was had nothing to do with photography. You said very specifically, that you want to serve your clients or serve your couples. And I think that speaks very loudly to the mentality of the approach that you have to, to photography into your photography business. But I'm curious if you'd take us back just a little bit and get us started with the, the backstory. How did you get into photography in the first place? How did you go from swimming uh, at Duke <laughs> to ending up a professional photographer?
1: Oh man. So it's a kind of, I'll, I'll give you the bridged version. So I studied photography in college. Actually, my major was documentary studies and my like minor, I guess was photography. So I did a lot of documentary projects. When I was in college, I interned at VH1 photo and hated it just, it was too corporate for me. And I wasn't really working with the type of photography that I wanted to be doing. I also worked on a movie set. I worked for Paramount Pictures and I also hated that. It just wasn't, Wasn't really for me, so I kind of fell out of love with photography, to be honest. And I fell in love with teaching. Like I got to go to Vietnam and teach, and I taught in Tanzania for a summer, um, and just thought that that's what I wanted to do. So I joined Teach for America, and they placed me in Washington D.C. And it was a lot different than serving communities abroad. I thought that it would just be a different experience, and it wasn't really for me, and it was very, very difficult. I Hats off to every single teacher everywhere <laughs> because that is the hardest job in the world. And then I kind of fell back in love with it actually when Ben and I got engaged about four years ago. And we went through the process of doing engagement pictures and, you know, kind of planning our wedding. And I'd always been obsessed with weddings. It's kind of cheesy, but. I always watch Say Yes to the Dress and My Best Friend's Wedding. Like I was one of those girls. I just kind of, <laughs> I do, I weirdly love weddings. And you know, I was like, I can do this. I I love shooting and I have a background in photography. And so I just kind of picked up my camera again and started offering sessions to my friends that were engaged. And then I shot my first wedding and then it kind of weirdly just snowballed. I don't know how else to kind of explain it, but the support, just people knew me as like the artsy swimmer when I was in college, I guess. And they just- kind of, were like, why haven't you been doing this all along? Um, so like the outpour from my local community with the rising tide group that I was a part of, and then my friends and family at home. And now I've been full-time for almost four years now. So, wow, yeah, that's kind of how it started. Just very lucky.
0: And you moved into that full-time role then pretty quickly, I guess. I mean, from what you're, what you're describing.
1: Oh, yeah. Full tilt, full time. It's just, it almost kind of forced me to. Yeah. Um, I was still teaching privately for a little bit. And then uh, I just got bogged down and we kind of looked at the numbers and said, you know, I don't need two jobs. I don't need three jobs. I need one job and I need to be really good at it. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it's been great.
0: Now you're a wedding photographer, and in DC, which is a a pretty large market, there are a few wedding photographers there, and and all around the country for that matter, in the world. How do you set your wedding photography business apart from other photographers, particularly in your market? What is your photography business's brand position?
1: Great question. So DC, I think recently was the number three market. There's New York. There's parts of California and then there's DC. Like you could trip over a wedding photographer here if you walk down the street, but you could also trip over a wedding here. Like there, everyone wants to get married here. There's the city, there's Virginia, there's Baltimore, there's Charlottesville. Like there's not a shortage of weddings. There's no shortage of photographers either, but essentially my personality is my brand. I'm a very, I don't want to say like brandless photographer because that's not uh, accurate, And I don't want to say I'm the non-brand either because that's not entirely accurate, but I kind of uh, hinge everything I do on transparency uh, and being open and honest. I will always have a FaceTime communication with any couple that comes my way. About 60% of them find me from word of mouth, either friends or past clients Or to be honest, other photographers, like other photographers are my best resource when it comes to bookings, because if I'm booked, I don't have an associate program and, you know, I'll send them clients their way. And if they're booked, they'll send clients my way. So that's kind of like a lovely back and forth that we have a little community over competition, if you will. But when a client comes to me and we have the conversation, I mean, they've seen my work, my pictures, I think, in my opinion are beautiful, but a lot of people have beautiful pictures in DC and a lot of my friends even have very similar work to my own. So what kind of sets me apart is something about my personality. Like if they click with me, if they like my kind of upfront, just, I want you to have a really fun wedding. I care about the photos, but what I care about more is their experience and them spending more time with the family and friends that they've invited there than getting beautiful, beautiful editorial photos. So that's kind of, I think what people are drawn to is, you know, I'm a little bit sarcastic and I have cats and I I'm a little quirky. And I think that's, kind of why people go with me. I'm super extroverted. As you can tell, I can talk to you for an hour (laughs) without being face to face. Yeah. I think it's, it's just, you know, if we, if we click.
0: Yeah. And one, and the way that you, I guess that not just you, all of us, the way that we put ourselves out there, especially, I mean, this has been the case for years now, but, but in this time in which we have access to social networks it's it's a really powerful thing. I was thinking, even as you were talking there, I mean, it, traditionally, the idea of a brand position is is very very distinct, right? There is there is a particular like, somebody a photographer might say, I photograph um, weddings only in black and white and for couples specifically from you know fifty to sixty years old, and that's kind of an extreme example, but a traditional brand position is, is a very clear distinction between one brand and the other. This brand offers this thing, this brand offers the other thing. And it's very easy then to kind of play opposite of each other and market accordingly. But it's in this time that we live in where we have the opportunity to be able to truly, I mean, just to be very blunt, I guess mine our networks for potential clients where we have the opportunity to very easily reach out and connect with people putting ourselves out there is certainly a huge component of building our business and transparency as well is also a really big component. This has been something that I've been reminded of over the last six months to a year or so personally, just as a business owner myself. And so uh, I think it's a really important thing. It's a good reminder, uh, as you say, to, to put yourself out there. It makes a big difference when connecting with clients. And as long as you follow through them with a great experience, then those clients will likely refer you to their friends and on and on the story goes. So uh, that that's really kind of interesting that this is that really this continues to be a theme in the podcast. As much as I was looking for that traditional brand position idea, the reality is that the way that our industry and our market works these days, it's more important than ever to to maintain those connections and those relationships. And it starts with transparency. So that's good. What is your are you a bit of a gearhead? Do you have a particular like favorite camera or lens or accessory or something of the sort?
1: Oh, man, I feel like every photographer is a little bit of a gearhead. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, I can just tell you kind of um, love prime lenses, love anything. I shoot pretty wide open. So um, like those prime apertures with uh, or prime lenses with those low low apertures. Um, So I shoot Canon. uh, I shoot with a Mark III. Everyone's like, oh, do you want the Mark IV? Probably I will get a Mark IV as well. Um, (laughs) Speaking of being a gearhead. Exactly. So <laughs> all the numbers, all the things. I do shoot film. So I have a Pentax 645N, and that's a medium film at film format camera. And I also have a Canon EOS 3, which is a 35 millimeter film camera, and the nice thing about the Canon EOS 3 is it goes with all of my Canon lenses. So you can shoot film with all of your lenses that come with the Mark. So like your 50 and your 35, which are my two favorite lenses. Um,
0: I love the 50. Are you shooting it with the one eight, one four, one two,
1: one four? Yep.
0: Yeah, it, it is. It's got to be the best value. For the money out there, as far as the quality of image that you can get from it, it's lightweight, it's fast, easy to use. I absolutely love the fifty; it's probably my favorite lens as well.
1: Oh, it's great! I do. I shoot a lot of my ceremonies with the seventy to two hundred because I don't like to be in the ceremony. I kind of like to be invisible, so that one I always have to have. But if I have portrait time, well, when I have portrait time, it's always prime lenses.
0: That's cool. That's really cool, and I think it kind of keeps the uh, the workflow. Well, it's simple in a way, but then it also forces you to kind of move to compensate. If you don't always have a zoom lens on your camera, you got to actually move around and get a little bit creative. So I love that. Exactly.
1: Uh, Sometimes I have the 24 to 70 on for reception and I almost feel lazy that I don't have to like (laughs) move my feet and like recompose. I'm kind of just like, well, let's zoom in on this drunk guest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yes. Receptions. I, you know, I shot weddings for close to 11 years or so and uh, receptions always were uh, quite the, um, shall we just say interesting experience,
1: quite the experience. Yes.
0: <laughs> but those the, the wide angle lens really do really, I mean, having a zoom lens that, that enables you that wide angle field of view makes your job easier. One of the things that I used to go to quite a bit, probably too much actually was a fisheye lens. And again, it was uh-huh. that fixed focal length, but it was easy, easy to stick that thing on, get an unusual angle. And, um, and, and, you know, that fixed focal length came in really, really handy in that case too. I probably overdid it. You know, you know how as photographers, I, you, you're probably not guilty of this. I was extremely guilty of like latching on the one thing that I really, really liked and probably doing way too much of it. So no,
1: I'm definitely guilty of that. Like a hundred percent, the 24 to 70 is like my, my problem basically at, at receptions, but <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes I'll challenge myself. I'm like, okay, during Speeches, i will shoot just with my 85 like i will not use the zoom yeah um so no i feel you i'm there
0: yeah those internal conversations that we have with ourselves at, at weddings or at portrait sessions for that matter if we could actually have those put out on audio or in written form we'd we'd probably be um i imagine that that emoji that monkey emoji on our phones it's covering its eyes like we'd <laughs> there'd be a little bit of an embarrassment involved there
1: <laughs> for shame for shame <laughs> yeah. absolutely yeah
0: well, we, we talked earlier about the factor I mentioned just briefly that we were gonna be diving into two pretty big topics today. One is the the idea of success and then and then moving from that onto pricing for the purpose or for the sake of that success. This is the word success, I mean it's it's thrown around quite a bit these days. It's almost cliche. And as a result of the fact that we hear that word a lot, I think the definition kind of gets muddled, like a lot of words that we throw around. And and so I'm wondering if maybe we can start off with a definition of this word success, at least from your perspective, what does that actually mean?
1: Well, okay. So from my perspective, with goals, I mean, success, basically, you're thinking about a goal, like I want to be successful. So that is something in the future. So with goals, you can have big goals and small goals, Um, you should have big overarching goals, and then small goals to reach that idea of success or whatever it is. So for me, my the big things that drive me towards what I consider success are kind of cultivating a loving home. That's number one, making sure that like I am happy in where I'm living. My husband's happy in where I'm living. My cats are happy in where they're living and (laughs) potentially any future spawn that we may or may not have is also happy. So
0: yes,
1: (laughs) right. So cultivating a loving home, that's my big one, number one goal. Uh, Hmm. the next one is feeling content. Um, and that's again, the big overarching, there's so many things that nest under that, but under the word contentment, that's something different for everybody. But for me, it's just kind of like being healthy, feeling like attractive to myself, really. So that involves like going to the gym and all those small minor things and, you know, feeling like valued and feeling um, like my intellect is being valued. So all of those small things nest under that. And then the third thing that goes into success, which you can't, ignore is finance, right? So feeling like financially competent or feeling financially stable. And I guess, you know, that also goes under the loving home that also goes under feeling content. But in my mind, I've kind of compartmentalized in those three things. So cultivating a loving home, feeling content and being financially stable. And underneath those three things, there's steps that I take, you know, weekly, you could do daily, but I think that's a little bit um, overwhelming. So weekly things that I work towards to make sure that those three things are being accomplished. And I can get into like nitty gritty if you are curious. About I really some am. Of the I mean, you, you've,
0: yeah, you absolutely made me curious. Now, so let's start with the loving home. What are maybe just even one or two examples of some of the things that you're doing to to work toward creating that environment?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so for me right now, it's very easy because it just involves me and my husband um, and our cats, which I've mentioned way too many times to feel comfortable <laughs> on this podcast. Um, but so that's small things like making sure I do laundry like once a week, you know, making one night a week where Ben and I cook dinner together because we are both super busy. You know, I'm shooting sunset sessions probably five times a week and then I'm gone on Saturdays. So making sure we cook dinner once a week, Um, sometimes, you know, making sure like I take over the dishes. He does a lot of the domestic stuff, which like God bless that man. Um, (laughs) But so sharing the weight more or less. And so each week there's a book that I have an accountability group that follows. It's the cultivate what matters and they have like little goal planners and every week you write down little goals that you hope to achieve um, so the loving home is a lot of domestic stuff right now actually I am creating a boudoir studio in my home which is really exciting how cool yeah so that that's involving like a lot of painting a lot yeah. of like curating of headboards and rugs and all that fun stuff so that's that's on this week's docket but yeah so it's a lot of like domestic bliss kind of stuff um, it involves date nights and like watch picking movie night that kind of stuff is is under that first oh, big
0: what's, what's a good movie you guys have, have watched together lately
1: oh man uh we're big like binge movie watchers so okay. if we if we find a series we'll just like crush the series so like all of the lord of the rings <laughs> like in one day we'll do
0: that oh wow yeah you really are serious
1: oh we go all in yeah
0: <laughs> have you ever have you ever knocked out harry potter all in one day would that even be possible mm, there's eight of them not- right?
1: not in one day. You can do the two weekend. It's like a Thanksgiving thing. You, okay, have, you have, okay. to have like two days to do like a solid nothing.
0: Fair enough. Okay, so you've got this this creating this loving environment, your home, and like you said, a lot of it's it, a lot of it's the basics. Um, doing what is needed to take care of that environment. Uh, but then also creating space for you and your husband to be able to spend time together. I think that's it's awesome that you prioritize that and, and to take it a step further, that you have some type of accountability through this book and this group um, in order to maintain that environment. I think it's a, a beautiful example that you set. What about the idea of contentment? What do you do toward that?
1: So contentment's a little bit more difficult because everybody is different for how they feel content you have to really, honestly, I'm going to sound like a total hippie. You really should meditate on it um, and figure out. What it is that makes you feel whole or what it is that makes you feel calm or at peace, Um, all of those words are applicable. And so for me, a big part of that is just feeling confident. I don't know where that comes from. It could be, you know, how I was raised. It could be the fact that I'm a 28-year-old woman in an entrepreneurial role, whatever that means. So for me, being content is I the comparison thing, it comes back to that earlier. I'm not allowed to scroll on Instagram. Um, so I can I can post my picture and leave it there. And I am not allowed to take my thumb and go down the screen and <laughs> look at other people's work. Even my friends. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not allowed on Instagram. And this is a self-imposed rule as part of my feeling content with myself. Yeah. Part of being content is also like feeling good about physical health. So um, I run about five miles a day. If I don't run, I go to solid core, which is like, my drink the Kool-Aid type of workout in DC. It's a lot of, it's like Pilates extra. Uh, so doing something physical once a day.
0: By the way, I have to say like Pilates is is difficult enough. Pilates extra, you're taking it to a different <laughs> level.
1: It's, I mean, you should really Google it. They okay. have some, a bunch of studios all over the world, but it is probably the hardest workout I've ever done. We're going, I'm going to orange theory tomorrow with my husband. That's going to be great. I've never tried that, but And Do you not? still
0: swim as well?
1: Oh yeah. Sometimes if, uh, usually when the weather's nice. So in DC right now it's about 50 degrees. So I need, I need a month or two more and then we'll be back on the pool.
0: I get it. Yeah. Okay. So, so contentment, you know, and one of the things that you are are touching on again is this notion of self-awareness, understanding what it is that makes you feel good. I, I, I probably mentioned him too much on the podcast, but Tony Robbins, I'm a big fan of Tony, Tony Robbins and uh, his book, Reawaken the Giant Within, and he talks about the significance of finding what makes you happy, or ultimately, very simply put, your your values, uh, being very clear about your values, and, and values at the end of the day are those those ideas, those big ideas or ideals that, you know, bring you happiness. And, um, for you understanding what makes you happy, then trickles down to how you behave on a day-to-day basis, um, which leads to attaining that in this case, contentment, that would be maybe one of your values you're doing. You're taking the steps necessary to feel that contentment and it, it exhibits self-awareness and it exhibits proactivity. And I think that's, that's really, really great. What about financial stability? Do you take a similar approach?
1: Absolutely. For me too, I'm so glad that you talked about like individuals because it's so hard to define success if you're not thinking about you as your own person. So for me, I love running my own business, but I have friends that I tell them about what it entails or what drives me. And they were like, they never want to own their own businesses. They like being told what to do. They like the nine to five. They like reporting to someone and getting a gold sticker. So that's you know, it's completely different. Same thing with finances. I mean, for me, I live in DC and it is expensive to live here. My husband and I, I mean, I also have no shame talking about money. I don't think anyone should. So I always find it fascinating and something that I like to talk about all day. Our condo, we i I had this budget in my mind about what a single family home would cost because I'm from Florida, so I vision I envisioned a yard and a dog and you know a single family home, and our budget was a condo in d c because that's the area that we're in right so when you think about your finances, you have to think about you know the market that you're operating in and kind of what your your financial goals are so for my husband and I, we want to pay off the condo by the time we're thirty, so in the next two two years, three years. That's awesome. Little, little younger. Yeah, that's what that's the goal. And we're working every day to kind of achieve that goal. We refinanced last month. And once we paid off the condo, we're going to rent it out. So this will be a passive income revenue stream for us, which would be amazing. And then buy another property to live in in the DC area. So that is for me, in my mind, in my Florida mind is a boatload of money. But to do that, to have a rental property, like you'll see Chip and Joanna Gaines redoing Waco, Texas, for these beautiful mansions for like two hundred thousand dollars. That's not a reality in D.C. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> it's just not like a two hundred thousand dollars will get you like a room somewhere right. um, in D.C. It's not a thing. So it really depends on your smaller financial goals and your bigger financial goals. Mostly, what drives me is I want to be able to have if we have two children, I want to pay for their college. It's just something I've always wanted in my head. And I know how much that costs. I know how much children cost. I know how much I have to make to save for that specific scenario. And that's kind of another like financial stable goal that drives me. Some people don't want kids. Some people already have five kids and have a trust fund and don't need to save for their colleges. Some kids don't go to college. So it's just there's so many factors that go into it. So what I kind of recommend is for people to like really sit down and like envision their future and what they consider financial success.
0: And, you know, you continue to mention the word goal and we started again, this, this very, In depth or not even in depth, but a very big topic that we could potentially go even further in depth with. But the theme has been this notion of a goal setting goals and innate to the idea of goals is subjectivity, right? Those goals are set for yourself. You there is a particular thing that you want or that you want to do. And so you set a goal or a set of goals that enable you to reach that place or to do that thing. Or in and you know, in the case of finances, to have a certain amount of money in the bank or to have a certain number of properties or whatever it might be. But very simply, this idea of success, again, innate to this this conversation about goals is subjective. There isn't a black and white definition of success and I'm glad that you've that you've made that a theme in this conversation because to your earlier point about comparisons it's easy for us to compare ourselves to one person or another whether you know a celebrity or the photographer down the street and look down on ourselves as a result of not living up to their particular life and the reality is their life has absolutely no bearing on ours in the end their goals have no bearing on ours we need to keep that in mind and ultimately be very clear about what we want to get out of life, set the necessary goals that will enable us to get to that place and focus on those things. And um, it, that will be success for us, uh, as you explained, and will be much more fulfilled in the process because we're not playing that comparison game. So I, I love the direction this conversation is going. Now, the idea of financial success um, is very, of course, closely tied to this topic of pricing for photographers. And this is a, it's a big topic. I, I don't think it's as complicated as a lot of photographers have made it over the years, but agree. Hey, hey, I agree. And, yeah. And I'd love to get your take on that in fact, but can you kind of walk us through what you, I, I think you may have even alluded to this earlier, but what was your first wedding? How much did you get paid for your first wedding?
1: Oh my gosh, I probably got paid in drinks. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> it was like it was a friend. I had never done a wedding before and they knew that because they were a friend. So that was just I mean, the way I started my business too is I would like photograph my own shoes on my floor in my I mean, room basically and say like, "Oh, these could be your bridal details." You know, you have to basically I faked it until I made it. Um, so for my first wedding, I just literally was paid nothing. Um, <laughs> But eventually uh, what I did is I worked very hard and I shot a bunch of weddings that I was proud of. And then those I kind of scaled to feel more confident charging more. So I didn't immediately come out the gate charging what I'm charging because that's not, that's not appropriate. My, I wasn't worth that in my own opinion.
0: Let me be, let my, me ask, ask you just very specifically when you, I mean, I, I totally get that first wedding not being paid anything, but let's, let's say when you establish your first price point for photographing a wedding. What was that? And then kind of take us from there to what you're charging now, if you don't mind.
1: No, I don't mind at all. Um, So my first weddings, I think I was charging around $2,000. Wow. And I was like, I will go anywhere. I will fly anywhere and do anything. And I will work for 10 hours and I will do a free engagement session and all all the things because I was hungry. You know, I was wanting to shoot everything and everyone in every possible situation and scenario. Yeah. Um, But you know,
0: I, you, you say that, and and that's, I think a very commonplace thing for many, if not most photographers, but most of those photographers that are saying or thinking those things are probably charging $500 to do the same thing. You started at $2,000 and I, I don't know, how, how did you have the confidence to do that?
1: You have to understand the market that you're operating in, right? So if you're in Washington, D.C. and you're charging $500 for a wedding, no one is going to trust you to do a good job, Uh mostly because the area that like our average pricing is probably $3,500 for a wedding in this area. So if you give things away at a lower price, they're not going to view that as a deal. They're going to view that as, oh, she needs to learn or, oh, we're doing her a favor, Um, so like the complimentary engagement session was kind of how I like felt more confident about doing like a lower end price, if you will. Um, but so the $2,000 mark, again, it is so important to do market research in the area that you're operating because you can't just roll up to a desolate town in the middle of the United States and say, you know, I'm just starting out and I want to charge $2,000. That's not realistic, but I'm in the number three market in the, in the United States, to shoot weddings, so two thousand dollars is a deal, but it doesn't look like it didn't look like I was brand new, which in the fact I was.
0: Well, but there's there's a sense of uh, logic there, and I almost made a joke as, as soon as you said it, because you know the, the tendency, and I was guilty of it really too. Um, the tendency for photographers, a lot of times, is just to kind of randomly make up a price point and throw it out there and hope that they get it, and make an adjustment later on if they need to. But you, you actually used a little bit of thought when you came up with that that initial price point. And it wasn't, hey, I've not shot 50 weddings yet, so I can't charge $2,000. It was, this is the way that my market thinks, and so I need to charge accordingly. And I think it's really important that we look at this conversation Intelligently, and, and part of that, uh, or part of what is innate to looking at pricing intelligently, is understanding the market and pricing accordingly. So that's, that's really, really fascinating. So you said you started at $2,000. What's the average that you get for a wedding now?
1: Oh, around $5,000 per wedding.
0: Which actually puts you in the top. I think it's about five percent in in the U.S. market. Um, It's just pretty crazy in and of itself. But how did you? Maybe you can kind of walk us through, especially for our listeners who are maybe curious about this topic. They've either established a business, or maybe they've got a business, but they're like, you know what? I need to make a change. Something's not clicking, and maybe it's my pricing. What are a few steps that they should take or a few big ideas that they should consider as they look at adjusting their pricing? How can they approach this intelligently in their own business?
1: Absolutely. Great question. So glad you asked it. Um, <laughs> so for, for me, my pricing now, so the original pricing that you're talking to me about was brand new, Kerr, cur- who wants to do anything and everything, had another job to sustain herself per 2.0, which is what I guess I'm calling myself now, which now sounds really cheesy, but it's fine. I first sat down and I made a budget and I looked at how much I needed to make to achieve the goals that made me feel financially successful. Like I said, that's super individualistic, but I looked at my mortgage. I looked at my student debt. I looked at Ben's income. So I did the math based on like what I spend on my business versus what is coming into my business, including tax and said, this is the number I need to hit. And then I thought, how many weddings do I need to shoot to hit that? And I personally, I cap, I won't do more than 25 weddings. Like this year, it was an oops and I'm shooting 27, but (laughs) two of them were in off season, so I'm not really counting them. So for me, if I shoot 30 weddings, I don't see Ben. I don't go to my friends' weddings. I don't have my do-nothing days. I feel overwhelmed and I don't have enough of me to give to my clients. So I set a limit for myself for how much I'm going to be working And then I said, okay, if I'm shooting that number of weddings, how much do I have to charge to hit my financial goals? And the numbers worked. If they didn't work, I would have had to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, like where can I cut or what can I move? This number is too high. Brides aren't going to pay this. Or what can I supplement with? Can I do more family sessions, which I don't actually do, but I do them for past brides if they ask nicely. (laughs) And what other things? Like, do I host a workshop? Like, do I do that? It turns out I didn't need to do that. All those things that I do, I do by voluntary choice, but that's what I did. I looked at my money and I made a budget based on how much I wanted to work, but it also related to my market. You can't say, I want to make, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollars a year. And I'm working in a place where there's maybe 10 weddings a year. You have to be realistic about these goals and you have to look at, you know, the need and kind of how, how you're getting your income now. A big thing that I'm a proponent of is kind of looking at last year's numbers. Where did each inquiry come from? When did they come in? Did they book? How soon after did they book? What package did they book? Um, where did the general, like, where did the lead come from? And if all of your leads are coming from you know, wedding wire, or if they're coming from other clients, invest your time and money in that avenue. So take your clients out to dinner or offer like discounts on prints for more referrals for your, you know, friends' weddings or bridesmaids' weddings, or if your wedding wire really worked for you or the knot or whatever advertising thing you're doing, double down. So it's kind of, it's so specific and it's hard for me to advise other people I will say what has worked for me. And then I kind of suggest things based on that.
0: So I, I, I want to go back to your original point, which is very simply just do the math, figure out what your budget is, what needs you have. And, and when I talk to photographers about setting goals, that the, the thing that I add to that is not only meet the needs that you have, but also think about how much you want to, to put away and how much you need to take those trips to, to go somewhere on your own as you mentioned earlier that van trip it sounds awesome and <laughs> and or you know maybe it's with a partner or, or other family or friends or otherwise what kind of money do you need for the wants as well and let that be the starting point of the conversation uh, not you know am i good enough Um, I understand where that conversation comes from, but we have to, at the end of the day, I I love that Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, who I'm a huge fan of, makes this point pretty regularly, which is not to be romantic about business. I understand as artist types, and I'm I'm quite the emotional individual myself, um, where that, you know, we want to feel a certain way. We want to feel good about what we're doing. We want to feel good about ourselves. But at the end of the day, In order to run a successful business, we've got to be at least a little bit logical as well. We need to be intelligent in the decisions that we're making, and we have to base that on facts, on data. And at the very root level of these decisions that we make about our finances are our needs, number one, our desires, our wants, the things that the extras, if you will, and I wouldn't even necessarily consider them extras. But how much money we want to save over the next five years or 10 years, how many trips we want to go on, and how much money we need for those. And, you know, do I, in my case, it would be, do I want to buy this motorcycle and how much is that going to cost and how much do I need to set aside for that or whatever it might be? But we have certain financial goals. And then we develop a business model that supports those goals and we price accordingly. And I love how specific you got too about the fact that you are. Not just simply thinking about the amount of money that you want to make, but also the amount of time that you want to spend making that money. So 30 weddings is too much. You don't get to spend time with Ben if you do that. I love this the level of self-awareness there and the logic innate to the decision-making when it comes to your pricing, I think, is a wonderful example for all of our listeners. You talked about looking at the market and, and very specifically, again, looking at client behavior, uh, and again, this is a very logical take, and I think it's important that our listeners take this example and go apply it. Uh, I was having a conversation with a photographer just recently, and I was asking them about using Facebook ads for getting new business, for the photography business. And very simply, their answer was that, that they, didn't, they didn't understand or they didn't know where this business was coming from. And it's one of the, the least things that we can do as photography business owners is to ask clients consistently where they're coming from, or at least look at the Google analytics, understand where this traffic is coming from, understand where you're getting it from, and make adjustments to not only your business model, but your marketing efforts as well based on that data. I think that's really important. Do you have anything else to add to this conversation about pricing?
1: I mean, you said all the things <laughs> that I was thinking. <laughs> hey, I was just uh,
0: repeating you. I think you summed it up pretty brilliantly.
1: <laughs> it's just so important to look at your own data and your own numbers. And it's boring as hell. I will tell you, I am not, I did not want to do business. Like I wanted to be a photographer, but now I'd almost prefer to be a better businesswoman than a yeah. better photographer because I know stunning photographers and their work is beautiful, but they're working retail to support themselves because they don't have. The business savvy or the drive to figure out or to connect the dots so it's just it's not fun and you know if you, it's your weakness help find help like get outsourcing talk to a financial yeah. advisor like really it is worth the money and time and effort to sit down and kind of just look at everything on a piece of paper where is the money coming from where is the money going what do i want it to go to and i'm also so amped that you mentioned investing um in yourself and also like for retirement because yep. I do not envision myself as an 80-year-old wedding photographer. I do not see it. I cannot picture myself for eight hours a day on my feet shooting beautiful young couples as an old, decrepit woman. So (laughs) it is so important to start like a SEP or a Roth and just save for your future. And I feel like so many, especially young photographers who are in their 20s, are not saving for retirement, and they should be. So that's it. Yeah, that's what I'd like to add.
0: And and there are plenty of apps even out there that will help automate that process for you, even if it's overwhelming to you right now to set. And I say you, our listeners, for those of you listening in and you're you're hearing this conversation about investments, and that just seems overwhelming when you're just trying to make ends meet and, and get enough weddings or portrait sessions in order to pay the bills. I get it. Uh, but there are, I, I've even, and I, it slips my mind right this second, uh, there's a particular app that I downloaded and experimented with that I find quite fascinating. And there are probably multiple solutions out there that will do this, but they'll automatically pull extra change. Um, if you spend $5.38 at the grocery store for you know whatever it might be, it'll take that that app or that system will then take the remaining, uh, what is that, $0.62 cents and set that aside in this so-called savings account, and uh, or it, it may have even been an investment account. But anyway, it automates this process of saving even little bits at a time. If that's all you feel like you can do right now or it's overwhelming to, to think about setting aside $500 a month or $1,000 a month or whatever it might be, start small. Um, a lot of times, really with anything in business, if if it seems overwhelming, start small, make some steps. Once you get moving, that momentum will be encouraging and, and taking bigger steps toward whatever it is that you're working toward, whether it's investment or building your business further will seem much less overwhelming. So this is really great conversation. I'm, I'm excited about the direction that we went with this. And I think there are a lot of takeaways for our listeners, but I'm sure they're going to want to see what you do, see what you're about, follow you online. So if you don't mind, share your website one more time and also where our listeners can find you on social media.
1: Oh, yeah, that's super easy. Um, so everything can be found with my name, K-I-R, the number two, and then B-E-N. So Facebook is slash Ker2Ben with the number, I-G is at K-I-R, the number two, B-E-N. And same thing, my website is number 2 bencom um, So yeah, that's me.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Well, Kerr, this has been really, really wonderful. Thank you for making time. Thank you for being a great conversationalist. And thanks for ultimately sharing your wisdom and your experience uh, with the book of podcast listeners.
1: Yeah, this was the best. Thanks, Nathan.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the book of podcast today. Will you let us know what you think by leaving a review of the podcast in iTunes or maybe in the Apple podcast app. And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast, maybe suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My direct email is nathan at photographersedit.com. The Boca Podcast is brought to you by Photographers Edit, custom image editing for the wedding and portrait photographer. Just visit PhotographersEdit.com.